Our scripture reading today is from Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at, the time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we, um, we stop to remember the startling truth that, that we are not alone here in this building, but that you are here with us. Lord, you are always with us, but perhaps especially as we are gathered in your name, as we are listening to your word. And we pray that as we um, contemplate the story that might be familiar for many, that, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would draw our gaze to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, one of the things that I've noticed whenever I'm at church singing some of the songs is that if I'm not careful... The, the music is just so enjoyable, the words happen so quickly that I, I don't always connect with what I'm singing at the time. Maybe you're familiar with that experience yourself. So I thought I'd actually start with just actually reflecting on a few words of a song that we'll be singing at the end of our service. Um, these are probably familiar. When the boat is tossed upon the waves, when I wonder if you'll keep me safe, do you know what that's like? When I see the wicked prospering, 
when I feel I have no voice to sing. Do you know what that's like? When I find myself in deep distress and you lead me to my final breath, most of us do not know what it's like to be brought to our final breath, but do you know what it's like to feel like we're close to it? The song that we will be singing later on is a song that we could say is a song of exile. It's a song of those who are living in a land that is not home. For us, those who live in a land where God's presence is not always clear, where sometimes God seems very distant. How do we do this? How, how do we continue to navigate this kind of sense of, of lostness at times? The book of Daniel is written for that. It is written to those in exile to help us to know how to navigate this. And that is definitely what we have in our passage this morning, something that is meant to give us insight in the midst of exile. It begins, um, I suppose, with what you could call a, a building project. We are told that Nebuchadnezzar decides to erect an idol, and it's not just any idol. It's a golden idol, which means it's valuable. And it's not just any golden idol. It is, we're told, 60 cubits tall. So if you've been to downtown Western Springs and you know the old water tower, that's how tall we're talking about. And that day, it would have been enormous, especially if it's covered in gold. Nebuchadnezzar in this moment is not just trying to make any old idol or god. He is trying to make, we might say, the most high God, the tallest one, greater than all others. And as he is finished with this project of erecting this, this majestic statue, he, he calls for a convention. You might notice that it was listed again and again, the sea traps, prefects. It's pretty much, if we were to speak in modern day terms, he's asking for the governors, he's asking for the mayors, the local officials, the judges throughout the area, the king's cabinet. Basically, if you were a politician of any sort, you were invited to come to this moment. And, and it's not just in the local area. There's a time where the, the king speaks to, oh, nations, oh, peoples, oh, tongues. We're, we're supposed to understand that this is people from all over. This is IdolCon. I mean, like, you know, there's this convention that's bringing everyone in this massive field. And, and when they come, there is a simple command. It's just one thing. When I give you the cue you need to bow down to this great idol that I have set up. And to be clear, that when, when Nebuchadnezzar is making that command, he's not asking people to you know, leave all of their other worship. This is a polytheistic society. There's room for all sorts of different gods. He's just saying, along with those gods that you worship, I want you to worship this god. Many, many centuries earlier ago, um, in that same area, when, the, when this country was more known as Babel rather than Babylon, you actually see a very similar thing that's taking place. The people gather together and they seek to make a really tall building. And the goal is to unite everyone. 
Because if all of humanity is united, there is peace. If all of humanity is united, there is prosperity. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He is wanting to use all that he has. He's wanting to use his wealth to establish this most high God. He's wanting to use all of the artistic ability. Notice this this great orchestra with harps and bagpipes. It's repeated again and again. This is a majestic sound of music that's going on. He's wanting to bring all of his his military might by saying that if you don't do this, you will be needing to go into the furnace. Everything that he has, he is seeking to establish a unity, to gather all nations, all peoples around one thing. Because if you can get unity, then you have peace and prosperity. And in doing so, he is just one of many people throughout human history who has sought this very goal. If you think about it, whether we're talking about Julius Caesar, or maybe Napoleon, or or Hitler, or the Soviet Union, all of them have in common the idea that they're wanting to unite all of humanity, or at least a significant portion of humanity, under one underlying purpose. Because if they're united, there is prosperity and there is peace. Uh, We see it even in our day in other ways. Uh, You know that song uh, by John Lennon, Imagine? where he says, imagine there's no heaven. So in other words, everyone agrees that the sky is all there is above us. Imagine there's no religion. Again, so that everyone can agree that this is all there is. Imagine we were all united, living life in peace. It's, it's a vision. If we can all agree on what is most important, if, if we bow down to the materialist world, all together, peace, prosperity. There's a version of that you could speak of today, maybe a little bit different from what Lenin is, but not that it says said, but not much different. What I call selfism. There, I think, is this general belief that if we all kind of can agree on the centrality of self, wow, things will be great. So if we all just buy stuff to feed self, we will keep that capitalist economy chugging. If we all listen to our heart and do what our self wants, and we let everyone else, in fact, not only let, if we endorse everyone else doing the same thing, then we will all get along. If we can just collectively bow down to the temple of self, then we'll be unified, and there'll be peace, and there'll be prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar might have a slightly different way of doing it, but the goal is one that is in common throughout human history. And and here in this moment, for, for a brief moment at least, it looks like everything is working just as it's supposed to. So you can imagine this, this field, this plain where it's just covered with people. There's people from all different nations all over. You've probably got like vendors who are selling food and trinkets. There are these different tents. There's all these different dignitaries. And at a certain moment as they are gathered around this tall statue and over in one corner there's like a stone building where the furnace is still going, the furnace that made the statue. Nebuchadnezzar is on kind of a raised platform. There's another raised platform where all of the bagpipers and horns and the massive orchestra are all there. And at a certain moment Nebuchadnezzar just kind of gives the cue to the conductor, and the conductor starts this inspirational music that just feels so majestic. And in that moment, everyone, everyone on the plane just bows down to their knees to their this great image, and everyone is unified. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and believes he has just united the world. 
And then he gets like this, this person poking him on his shoulder and, and saying, um, um, you should know that there are two or I guess three people who are not here with you right now. Three Jews who are working over Babylon who have decided not to come. And, and this does not make Nebuchadnezzar happy. He kind of like stops the orchestra. It's like record scratch moment. Like, you know, everything stops for a moment. And he tells the soldiers to quick bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come. And, and he, he says to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now just imagine these three men, probably in their 20s, they've been whisked out of their home by some pretty buff guards in, in military you know, armor. And, and now the army is all around them. And beyond that, still on the plains are all the dignitaries and everything. They're just kind of like watching. You can hear a pin drop, and they're standing before the single most powerful person in the world in that moment. And what do they say? Sorry, this is above your pay grade, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, look at what they say. They, they, they respond to him and, and say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Sorry, you don't get an answer from us about this because we have a higher calling than you. Just, just think, about, think about the courage that must have taken in that moment. And in fact, they even go beyond saying that we don't need to answer you. This is above your pay grade. They even say, you know what? If, if you decide to throw us in the furnace and that is what you said you were going to do, our God is able to spare us. But even if he doesn't, we are still not going to worship this God. You can almost imagine in their minds they are praying, even in my death, I'll follow you. Even in my death, I'll follow you. And, and I, I kind of just want to step back for a moment and ask, what is it that gives these three men this stability that in the face of overwhelming power in front of them, they're able to have this courage. I mean, on one hand, I think part of it is just they know their Bibles. They know that God has commanded in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to it or worship because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And what God is saying there is, I am not for polytheism. I am the only God I will not allow worship to be shared. You must worship me and me alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know this. They know that that is what God has commanded. But it's, it's more than just, I think, an allegiance to certain commands. There is insight that I think is driving them in this moment. We, we've spoken about this in Daniel, about how... Daniel is inviting us to recognize that if we only look with our eyes, if we only judge by our senses, we are meeting, missing an entire dimension of reality, that we need to be able to recognize there is a heavenly aspect to things that we cannot see. And insight is to recognize that. And, and that, I believe, is what is driving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that moment. On one hand... Around them is every sign of human 
greatness you can imagine. There's the military might, there is the majestic music, there is the beautiful statue gleaming in the sun, there are all of these people and there's this king. And so by human standards, it is clear what is most powerful. And yet, they recognize that there is something that, that cannot be seen. That there is one who is greater, more beautiful, one who is truly a most high God, who is worthy of worship. They, they know that there is someone who is able to even save them from the fiery furnace itself. And so with that insight, that awareness that there are things they cannot see that are greater than what they can see, they say, sorry, king, we answer to someone higher, so we won't even answer to you about this particular question. And Nebuchadnezzar is a little unhappy about that. Uh, that's probably an understatement to the highest degree. You might have noticed uh, when reading, it was even when they, he first heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says he was furious. And then here it says, after he, you know, they give him this, this answer, he is utterly furious. It says his face is changed. He is flying into rage. He is you know, going off the handle. And, and, and the question that I want to ask is why? I mean... It's a little bit odd if you take a moment back to think people don't just get filled with rage when they're confident and secure, right? It's rage, this kind of losing control happens when one feels threatened. These are three guys who are barely old enough to shave. They are not instigating a rebellion. They're not trying a resistance movement. They are just on their own in their home, refusing to bow down. And yet Nebuchadnezzar seems, Nebuchadnezzar, the single most powerful person in the world, seems to be frightened or threatened or wanting to show them why. Again, this isn't actually unusual when we, when we look at how, how this kind of thing is treated. The, the Christian church, just speaking about the church for a moment, when when it seems to accept whatever people say is the highest value, there is great admiration for the church. But when the church seeks to say, no, there is someone higher that we have allegiance to, everything changes. So we could talk about the, the, the church in China. You know, there's kind of two categories of churches within China. There is, on one hand, the the official church, the, the state-sanctioned church. This church is allowed to preach pretty much the same stuff that most churches preach, but there's one thing that's different. That is, they must always make sure they are maintaining a patriotic allegiance to the Chinese government. They're allowed to do what they want as long as they bow their knee to the Most High. On the other hand, there is another church or a group of churches called the Underground Church, and they preach largely the same thing, but they have one thing different. They will not swear allegiance to the Communist Party or to China and above Jesus. Jesus is their king, and, the, and that he trumps all things. And, and while the Chinese government is for the first, the Chinese government uses all of its might. It uses the military might. Sometimes it uses politics to, to show fear, to strike fear, to, to imprison, to take to take property, there is rage that is expressed towards this underground church. Why? 
this past Monday on Martin Luther King Day, our family watched the film Selma, which was speaking, of course, of, of a part of the civil rights uh, movement that took place in the 60s with Martin Luther King. And there's this one moment where the South, remember the South is a place where pretty much everyone at that time was going to church. Everyone at that time was saying they believed in God. They were pro-Christianity. But when you saw a pastor, a white pastor, joining in in the civil rights marches, you have a group of people so filled with rage that they brutally kill this pastor because he has allegiance to something higher than their culture. Why? Or even closer to home today, um, the church is slowly becoming less and less valued in the eyes of culture, but even still, I would say that most people are positive towards faith, positive towards the idea of God positive towards the idea of prayer, positive towards Christian things, as long as that is coupled with an agreement with the mostly high-held values. But when we don't endorse certain values, things change. So as a church, I should say, we are called very clearly in Scripture to show respect and love and kindness to all humans as, as God's image bearers. And one of the great things that should give us shame is there are ways when, when we have been in the past interacting with those who are same-sex attracted or with those who have gender dysphoria, where we have in some ways dehumanized, where there's been cruelty, and that is so opposite what we are called to be as followers of Christ. And yet, even when we are living up to our calling, when we are showing love and dignity to all people, there is an expectation that we should go further than that, that, that there should be an agreement with what values our culture holds, that we should bless same-sex unions, that we should endorse gender transitions. And, and if we were to say, we have allegiance to someone who is higher than these values, and his word tells us that we are not permitted to do that, the response is anger, is rage. Why? I would suggest it's because it is not enough for us to be in a society or in any of these situations that I described to live and let live. What really drives us, what drives humanity is a desire to be unified behind one overarching vision. Because if we can find that unity around a most high God, whatever that most high God might be, there is peace and there is prosperity. And if you have any doubt that that is what is driving Nebuchadnezzar, look again at what he says in response. When he says, if you do not worship, in verse 15, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? We have an unmistakable worship war at place here, a showdown. The question is, who is truly the Most High God? And Nebuchadnezzar, in a moment, uses everything at his fingertips, all of his power. He, he, he has the mighty men, the, the strongest of his soldiers, take these three young men. He binds them with the, the thickest cords so that they have absolutely no ability to move. He has the, the furnace turned up hotter than any expert says it should be because it's now become dangerous, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care that when the mighty men bring these people into the furnace, they are killed. That's inconsequential. There is something here that is significant. He knows that everyone is watching, and he needs to make a statement. He needs to prove 
beyond a shadow of the doubt who truly is the most powerful one, who truly is the most high God. And that is actually what he does, just not at all in the way that he anticipated. It's interesting to me how in this moment, the story, the narrator turns our attention not to looking at the furnace directly, but we actually are, are watching Nebuchadnezzar as he is watching the furnace. And you can just imagine him as, as these three men are thrown in, and he sits down on his throne, and he has kind of a bird's eye view. He's able to, to look through the door into the furnace itself, and he's just waiting for, I mean, something horrific, really. He's waiting for the smell of flesh. He's waiting for terrible things, and in that moment, he will be satisfied and vindicated. But as he watches, you can almost imagine his face going from a sense of strength and anger to his face becoming like white. And he's just watching. And at one moment, he just kind of jumps up and he gets a little bit closer so that he can see. And he asks people to the side of him who can't see what he can say. He's like, didn't we throw three men into the furnace? And, and the experts respond, yeah, of course. And as he watches, his his voice is probably shaking as he said, I see four men, and none of them are bound, and they're walking around as if it's nothing, and the fire isn't even touching them. And, and the fourth man is like a son of God. Can you imagine how Nebuchadnezzar must be... In in that moment, for, for all of his adult life, he has experienced again and again one reality, that he is really powerful. Victory after victory. Every person surrounding him has said, may you live forever, O king. No one is willing to stand up to him. He knows he is great. And in that moment, suddenly he is exposed. Remember when I was a, a little kid, one time, I decided that I was going to take a, a brown grocery bag, and I decorated it as scary as I possibly could. I put a couple eye holes in, and I made it look like a monster, and then I put it over myself, and I went to, we had a shared yard, it was an apartment complex, and I decided I would, you know, scare some other people, and I found Cliff and Sean, two kids who weren't always nice to me, and I came and roared, and I was just waiting for the response, and they just pulled the bag off of me. <laughs> and in that moment, I felt really small. And I, I suspect that is how Nebuchadnezzar felt in this moment. The, the bag, that sense of importance, of strength, was just pulled right off of him. Or, or we might say the veil covering his eyes was turned, and he was, for a moment, able to see beyond what normally people can see. There was this window into heaven that he was seeing, and as he was recognizing that, that his, the, the furnace was kind of the fullest expression of his power, even his own army couldn't stand up to it, and it wasn't touching anyone. And, and he went from asking the question, what God can save you from my hand, to with trembling asking, what can save me from the hand of this God? 
And so after some time where he's looking and recognizing how, how utterly wrong he has been about everything, he, he eventually calls Shadrach and, and Meshach and Abednego to come out. And, and notice what he says. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. You hear that? Before everyone, before all the people who were just a moment ago bowing to this high idol, he says, servants of the Most High God. And we're told that as they come out, and all of the magistrates, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselor gathered together. As they watch, they recognize that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The fire did not have any power. I've said that Daniel is meant to give us a vision for something beyond what we can see. And I believe that there is a sense that as we, with Nebuchadnezzar, gaze into that furnace, there is a window opened for us that if we look and look closely, we will see more than what our eyes normally can see. That, that while in that moment, before that window opened, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar was inevitable. In the same way that when we are surrounded by skyscrapers and the entertainment complex and, and the things that feel so strong, those things feel inevitable. But in that moment, we recognize that it's all empty. There will come a time when all of the faults most high gods are exposed. When... The kingdoms like Babylon or, or even America or whatever will have crumbled. Where, where leaders like Hitler or Stalin will have fallen. Where, where movements that people subscribed to like selfism will be just shown to be miserably empty. Where everything that humanity puts to try to unite themselves other than God will be shown to be nothing. And there will come a day... When every knee will bow, whether out of terror or out of joy, as the Most High God reveals himself and, and the veil between heaven and earth is lifted. And every tongue will confess that he is the Most High God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and the book of Daniel in this moment, as it's inviting us to look with Nebuchadnezzar, it's calling us to see this now before the end. But in this window, beyond what we normally can see, there is something that we are also invited to see that I would suggest might even be more precious than that. So I, I try to imagine what it must have been like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, on one hand, we see, we see courage that is incredibly impressive. But you know, you know just because of the way that humanity is that in that moment where they can't move anything, where they're being carried by these muscular soldiers and there is not a thing they can do as they're being brought to this incredibly hot, fiery furnace, they must have been utterly terrified. It must have been awful. And yet, what happens when they are thrown into the furnace. They find 
God waiting for them there. I mean, isn't that what we see? I mean, the thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar is struck by more than anything else is that he sees a fourth man, one like the son of the gods. And, and, and later on, he says it was an angel. That was his understanding. Different readers, Christian readers, as they try to make sense of what happens in Daniel, suggest, what, could this possibly be Jesus before he becomes one of us in the New Testament? Is this the son of God joining with his people just briefly? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what is clear is that that fourth man is very clearly representing the presence of of God. And I find that incredibly significant. God could have just saved them from afar. He could have just, by his word, kept the fire from touching them. But he does more than that. He doesn't stay far away. He comes and joins them in that moment. He is there with them in a tangible way so that they can know that God has stepped in the fire with them and God will bring them through to the other side. And if we are looking and understanding that this is the most high God, the one who is greater than all things, I mean, compare this to all the other most high, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, as he is putting forward his most high God, he is willing to expend whatever. He's willing to destroy soldiers. It doesn't matter. And movements that are human movements often are not characterized by love. But what do we see here? The one who is above all, who is worthy of all worship, is willing to stoop down and be in the darkest moment with three men who have trusted in him. What we see not only is that God is mighty, but that God is unimaginably good. And isn't that what we see if we just keep going in the Bible? When, when the Son of God truly takes on flesh, what does he do? He enters into all of this with us. He enters into the the mess of our humanity. He enters into experiencing rejection and loneliness. He enters into our sin and shame, taking that upon ourselves, and he enters into our death so that whenever we face death itself, he is already there, and he has already taken away the sting so that we can know that we will come through death, through that final furnace, untouched. Because that is who our God is. The very beginning of um, reflecting on this, we were recording that one song, and, and that song has this commitment that states again and again, even in the storm I will follow you, even in want I will follow you, even in my death, I will follow you. And, and what this passage is inviting us to see is why we would want to make that commitment. Because, because our God is unimaginably powerful. He is great. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. But more than that, in this and throughout Scripture, we have seen God's unchanging heart. And his unchanging heart for you and for me is love. 